woman, Abraham's wife, who, to be honest, had a pretty tough life. Pretty tough life. She went through an awful lot of trials and sufferings and all sorts of things. It was hard for her. Yet at the end of it, she discovered something of God which brought color and hope and joy and peace in spite of all that she's gone through. In fact, she discovered something of God that, that meant that all that she'd gone to somehow got wrapped up into the joy that she finally came to, making it even bigger. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to just get straight on and read the passage. It's going to come up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, it's Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. And I'll read it for us. It says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. Uh, who here likes stories? Anyone like stories? Yeah, I like stories. And generally, everybody loves those moments in a story when uh, everything changes and you get a happy ending. Moments like the guy meets the girl, or the hero slays the dragon, or the puppet becomes a real boy. Um, those are good moments in the story. Those moments when darkness turns to light, or despair turns to hope. Uh, does anybody know who this is? Anyone know who this guy is? Yeah, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, to be precise. Author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and many other great books. And uh, Tolkien actually invented a word for those moments in the story when everything changes, from looking so bleak to looking so blight. It, it, he actually called them a catastrophe. If you're interested, he kind of married two Greek words together. Uh, but he called it a catastrophe, which means good destruction. Destruction of a hopeless course of events, turning it round to a hopeful course of events. In Tolkien's own words, a catastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces it with joy. catastrophe. Well, let me give you an example of what that might look like. Um, anyone watched Lord of the Rings? Yeah, great film, great book, great film series, and I love it. And, and one of the parts of that story that I particularly like is the Battle of Helm's Deep. That's in the second film, and that's a good moment. See, I'm going to talk you through it. What happens in the Battle of Helm's Deep is that the people of Middle-earth are threatened by the growing tide of evil, and so they, they all gather in this mighty fortress called Helm's Deep to, to hide together. Uh, but there's a guy called Saruman who's going to come up here, and he's not a nice guy. And he uh, creates an evil army of orcs and Urukai, um, who look a little bit like this, to storm Helm's Deep, in order to destroy those hiding within it and any elves or hairy dwarfs that get in the way. Um, and so what happens is you have wave upon wave upon wave of this army that storm the fortress and eventually break through. And it seems as though all is lost. The fortress is breached. Many have lost their lives. And those who, who remain are hiding in the keep while these bad boys are knocking on the door to see if they can get through. And that's basically what it all looked like. Pretty ugly, pretty dark. 
And there's a hero of the story who's called Aragorn, who's going to come up here. And he, at this moment, realizes all is lost and decides he's just going to ride out to his certain doom. And it's all pretty dark. It's all pretty miserable. And then everything changes. Uh, the sun rises in the east. And Gandalf, the white wizard, uh, the nice white wizard, appears with an army of men and rides forth. And as he does so, the sun rises and the brightness of the sun uh, blinds the orcs and the Urukai and kind of sends them into a stupor so that Gandalf and his army can slay them and essentially rescue Helm's Deep. And everything changes in that moment. That's a catastrophe. That's a good part of the story. But Tolkien explains that catastrophes in a story resonate with us so much because of their whisperings about reality. You see, he says that a catastrophe produces, and I quote, its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. Let me give you an example of that. Take childbirth. Decided against putting any photos to represent what that might look like on the screen. Um, but childbirth certainly looks pretty painful. Um, I, I've never been through it, but my wife, Becca, has on two occasions. And uh, there's a moment when all, all is pain and agony and the kind of unrelenting reality that you've got to push this baby out despite your dwindling strength and the mountain pain and your annoying husband saying, go on, just push. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> And yet, there comes this moment when the baby is delivered and the pain kind of subsides and you've got this precious new life and everything goes from looking so dark to looking so good. It's a catastrophe. Genesis 21 verses 1 to 7 is a catastrophe moment for Sarah. Everything changes. Uh, but to understand the gravity of it, you first have to understand Sarah. You have to first look at what experiences and troubles she brings to that moment, we've got to look at Sarah's story a little bit. So we're going to do that. Let's look at Sarah's story. What words might characterize Sarah's story? Well, I think the first one would probably be upheaval. We, we actually meet Je uh, Sarah in Genesis 12, and she's 65 years old. And it appears as though she's always lived in the same town with the same people doing the same things. Her life was pretty predictable, no great surprises. There's safety in that. And she knew the bus routes and had a favorite Shoe shop maybe, knew the fashion trends. Life was predictable. But then Genesis 12, 4 to 5, everything changes for her, and, and she ups and leaves. She leaves everything, all her familiarity. Why? Well, Abraham, her husband, has had this massive, life-changing encounter with God. He's met the living God, and he knows he's got to leave everything and follow the call of God. And Sarah comes along with him, but we're not told that she had any such great experience. She might have done, but we're not told. It's not documented. She just follows her husband, trusting in the God that he has met without herself having had this massive encounter. It's a remarkable faith. It's incredible. She leaves everything without any clear plan of where they're going to go or what they're going to do or how they're going to make ends meet. She ends up living in a tent. That's big upheaval. For a 65-year-old, it wasn't in her retirement plan. That's difficult. That's hard. Maybe some of you are going through lots of upheaval at the moment. Perhaps there is a big move that's happening. Perhaps it wasn't a move that you particularly wanted. Maybe you're looking for a house. Maybe you're looking for a new job. Maybe you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. That can be difficult. That was Sarah's story. 
What, what other words might Sarah use? Well, she might use, secondly, the words mistreated and abandoned. Why? Well, in Genesis 12, 20 to 30, we're told that shortly after she'd left everything to follow her husband Abraham, Sarah is told by her husband to deny that he is her husband because she's good looking and he's a bit wide for his safety. So instead, she denies he's his husband and just goes along with the fact that he's just her brother. In the end, she ends up therefore getting taken by Pharaoh, becoming Pharaoh's wife. So Pharaoh can gratify his desire for beauty. How abandoned must she have felt? How mistreated? How lonely? How used? Maybe some of you feel abandoned this morning. Maybe. Like the ones you thought you could really count on to always be there and look after you turned out not to be so reliable. Maybe you feel mistreated or used. Well, that was Sarah's story. What might be another word she might use? Well, the third disappointment and heartache. This is a really cheerful message this morning, isn't it? Way to go, Mike. Celebrate a baby. Let Mike talk to us. But this is real, and this was a big one for Sarah. This is a big one. I think at the end of Genesis 20, if you were to ask Sarah to summarize her life in two words, she may well use disappointment and heartache. Why? Because for her, the big deal was she had no children. And that really hurt. And she wanted kids. And the desire for children can often be really profound. And so not to be able to conceive is a pain of the magnitude that is hard to describe and certainly hard for anyone to relate to who's not been through it. And maybe some people are here like that today. We, that's difficult. I've never been through that. My, my very close family has. And I, I saw them go through it, and that in itself was heartbreaking. The pain of a longing and broken heart is perhaps the hardest of all. For Sarah, she longed to give Abraham a child and to hold one for herself. But even more than that, in that culture, to not have children was a big deal. See, right now, some, some people choose not to have children. No one chose that back then. No one chose that way. For a woman, no children often meant isolation or loneliness or even ridicule. It just wasn't how Sarah had imagined life would turn out. Maybe some of you, this life just hasn't turned out as you imagined it would do. She would never have chosen that. I've known some of my share of disappointments as well, uh, not to a small degree, probably not nearly as much as some of you. My brother, Joel, is a, one of my best friends. He's got Down syndrome. He's got a liver disease. He's got celiac disease. He's got various intolerances. He's fed by a tube through his stomach, and it keeps getting infected. Just, just two weeks ago, he was taken back to King's College Hospital in London again to have another operation. He's been through so much. We would never have chosen that for him. Never have chosen that. We love him. It's heartbreaking. Sarah's story was one of disappointment and heartache. What might be another word? Well, restless striving, actually. Restlessness. Um, Sarah's disappointment had led her to try and fix everything herself in so many different ways, which in the end led to restless activity and a restless mind. Very troubled. Uh, in Genesis 16, she encourages Abraham to take her maidservant Hagar and have a child through her, taking the promises of God into her own hands. I'm going to make this happen. In the end, it just made a whole lot more complication, a whole lot more difficulty. tells us that Hagar despised Sarah, and she felt that. Oh, she felt that. And actually, she was looking over her shoulder and jealous of Hagar, a constant reminder to her of her own pain. Perhaps, 
perhaps you're going through a lot of restless activity in the pursuit of making something happen that you thought was certain to happen. Or, or maybe you're just familiar with looking over your shoulder at other people and just feeling a bit jealous, just comparing yourself to them. That's tiring. It's trapping. That was Sarah's story. And finally, I, I think probably a, a word that Sarah would use as a result of all of these experiences would be cynical. Just became cynical with life and cynical about God, to be honest. Um, Genesis 18.12, we read that Sarah overhears God renewing his promise to Abraham that he's going to have a son and it's going to be through Sarah. And we hear that Sarah just laughs to herself. Ugh, am I going to have this happy turn of events at 90 years old? She laughs as if that would ever be able to happen to her. Life's trouble had caused the seed of cynicism to grow in Sarah. And so she laughs at God. How far has she fallen? That, this is sin. She laughs at God. She's become bitter and cynical and lost sight of him. And who can blame her for all that she's been through? And there was no comfort in her cynicism. Some people like to play the part of the cynic. No, not Sarah. Tells us in Genesis 18.15 that when, when she was found out that she had laughed at it, she, she was gripped with fear and denied it and, and wanted to hide herself away and keep people at arm's reach. Perhaps life has given you little reason for optimism. Maybe there's a few hardline cynics in here. Maybe you say to me, Mike, have you seen what's going on in Syria? Have you heard the news about all the alleged child abuse? There's little reason for optimism. Or the, all, all the poverty against the vulgar spending in the Premier League? Well, that, that was Sarah's story, was cynicism. Maybe some of us are like that too. It must have been hard for Sarah having had that as her experience of life, to be married to Abraham, uh, who was just so unwaveringly confident in God and so unwaveringly believed in his goodness and his power to, to provide a son. I wonder if Sarah just sometimes felt lonely and left out and inferior. Um, some people are just, you know, doesn't matter what life throws at them, they're just so very glass half full, aren't they? When you know the glass is half empty, and it could be a lot fuller. Uh, but... Perhaps that, well, that was what it's like for Sarah. It must have been hard. And if you're not careful, you can compare yourself to others and think that there's just something wrong with you. I'm just not like them. Now, I went through a, a season in my life when I couldn't really see the wood for the trees. And uh, the, the, the thought of God being near was just foreign to me. And while all the time other people can see the hand of God everywhere, I'm like, what does God's hand look like? I want to know. And it felt like I just couldn't see what they saw. And that can be lonely. So perhaps... You could forgive Sarah after all she's being through for wondering where is God and why has this all happened? And does God know and does God care? Like in Psalm 13 when David says, How long, O Lord, would you hide your face from me? If ever a story needs a you catastrophe, Sarah's story. And perhaps your story and mine. Where is God? Where is the you catastrophe? It's in a, the gift of a son. Let's look at Sarah's you catastrophe, shall we? And it, it, it comes in Genesis 21 in verse 1 when everything changes. It says, Genesis 21 verse 1, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah's you catastrophe was the arrival of the promised son, Isaac, which means he laughs. 
at the age of 90, she was given the pleasure of holding close the baby boy that she had so longed for. Abraham's baby boy. Abraham's 100 years old. Wow. And she treasures Isaac and rejoices over him and clutches him. And her heart's warmed by him because life's pain has turned around at the birth of this baby. But look deeper. It's not just a change in circumstances. What is it? What's the real catastrophe? For Sarah, the real catastrophe was the revelation of the grace of God through the birth of a son. God's grace had arrived to her through the promised son. Here, she encounters God herself. Not just Abraham's God, but suddenly Sarah's God. A God who's not far off, but close. God who was working for her, not against her, all along. And that had been with her through all the storms of life. Though at times she had barely known it. You see, verse 1 tells us the Lord was gracious to Sarah. And the ESV translated as the Lord visited Sarah. Because a visit from God is a visit of grace. The real catastrophe for Sarah was the revelation of God in the coming of her son. God had been with her all along. His promises had been true all along. For Abraham... The faithful one, God's promises had been true. For Sarah, the erring one, God's promises had been true. They really had. Through all the pain and the isolation and the doubt, even the cynicism, he had been there. Not unmoved and distant and cold, but involved and present and concerned and working things out for her good. His promises had never wavered and never swayed, though Sarah's confidence and feelings often had. But that couldn't hold back the grace of God. Couldn't hold back the visit of God. For it was always his faithfulness that determined there would be a catastrophe. Through a baby, she discovered God and everything changed. Pierced joy came into her story. Why? Well, everything took a new light. She went from a life of limbo through unnerving upheaval and change to a quiet confidence in God Almighty. The unchanging one who Hebrews said is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who David says in Psalm 59 is my fortress and my refuge in times of trouble. Her hope had gone from a familiar home to a familiar God. He was really there and could really be rested in. Could be her home. Why else? Well, she went from feeling abandoned through many experiences of mistreatment by others to seeing a God who would never leave her nor forsaken no matter how life looks. One who would never disown her like her husband did. One who, in all of those experiences, actually constructed for her rescue. If you read Genesis 12 or Genesis 20, you'll see how God made it so that she could be rescued from her trouble. God did it. It wasn't Abraham. She found one who knew the desires of her heart. One who the Bible says knew even the number of hairs on her head and wanted to wipe away every tear from her eye. You catastrophe moment for Sarah. The revelation of the grace of God through the birth of a child. It it took Sarah also from a life characterized by tiresome worry to one of true rest in the work of God. Not her work, in his work. This you catastrophe took Sarah from constant disappointment and heartache to a place of having her broken heart bound up in God. She really was 
loved by God. She really was known by God. He really did approve of her. His desire was to heal and not to wound her, to welcome her and not keep her out of his promises. He approved of her, not just her husband. And the result of this new catastrophe, this birth of a promised son, is that bitter and lifeless cynicism was replaced by joyful, faith-filled laughter for Sarah. The laughter of heartfelt worship. No longer was it a snigger as it was in chapter 18. It was actually an offering now, a laughter of offering to God. His goodness had changed everything. And Sarah's new laugh, you'll notice, is infectious. Draws people in. Her cynical snigger, Genesis 18, pushed people out. Kept her bound up. Don't let anyone see me. The new laugh draws others in. It says in Genesis 21, in verse 6, God has brought laughter, brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Suddenly people can come into her story now, even into the pain of her story. Because there's a new catastrophe. It's the grace of God revealed through the gift of a son. And it's for everyone. Therefore, everyone was invited in to see something of this grace of God. What a life Sarah had had. What a you catastrophe to turn that life around and in Tolkien's words, pierce it with joy. For Sarah, seeing the fulfilled promise of her son and holding him close revealed who God is. It changed everything. And do you know what? She never found out why. She never found out why. Couldn't this have happened a little bit less troubling way? Couldn't this have just been a bit easier? She never found out why, but she discovered who God is, and it just made the question why become smaller. I'm not sure it was completely gone, but it became smaller because it wasn't why, what is wrong with me, but oh God, I see who you are, and your love and your grace and your visitation. You came to me. And in a sense, all of the pain and the trial enlarged her joy. So they became even bigger. Like, it, it was swallowed up in it. When I swallow things, I get bigger. Uh, it's particularly the type of things I like to swallow. All this trial swallowed up and the joy became bigger at the end. What a you catastrophe. But what is your you catastrophe and what is mine? What is our you catastrophe? I mean, you don't know my story, not all of it. L lots of you know most of it. But you haven't seen all of the pain or all of the experiences or all that I've done. And I certainly don't know yours. Who am I to comment on your many trials? But the Bible says that your eucatastrophe is my eucatastrophe, and our eucatastrophe is Sarah's eucatastrophe. What is it? It is the revelation of the grace of God through the birth of a promised son. That's what it is, a son for you and a son for me. In Isaiah 7, in verse 14, the prophet says this, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the true miracle son. He is the ultimate promise. Jesus is, if you like, the true Isaac. The, the son of God born to show us what God is like. To give us a way in to communicate the grace of God to 
let us know who God is. What God did to Sarah, for Sarah through Isaac was a foreshadow of what God has done for you and for me in Jesus. He's given us a son. He's visited us. He's come among us, revealing his grace and love and power to turn around our stories. He's even with us in our suffering, even shares our suffering, even carries our suffering. No other God will do that for you. No other God, no other God ever written about will do that for you. Come down and suffer, God, Emmanuel, God with us. And he always has been. Everything changes with the birth of Jesus. It's a turn of the story, piercing it with joy. It's why we sing at Christmas time, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy to the world, the earth, receive the king. Tolkien himself called the incarnation of Christ the catastrophe of human history. It's the turning point of your story. It's the turning point of my story. It's the turning point of our story. It's the turning point of history. It is. Have you seen it? But what does God with us actually mean? Well, it means he meets us in the reality of our stories. Your joys? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And your pains? Both. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that this precious son, Jesus, would grow up to be a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, like people would hide their face maybe from Sarah. He can relate to Sarah's story of pain, and he can relate to those parts of your story and mine, which, you know, we wouldn't have chosen. This, though, was a perfect man. This man never erred. This man never turned his back on God. He's the only one who maintained that innocence that we all see in a baby while becoming a lion of a man. This son promised. But Isaiah 53, 4-5 tells us things like he took our pain and bore our suffering. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus came not only to share our sufferings, but to take it upon himself. How? Well, Jesus experienced ultimate upheaval. He left the security of heaven becoming homeless here to bring us home to God. He experienced ultimate mistreatment. He was condemned and flogged and crucified when he'd done nothing but cherish and heal and love others. But he gladly went to the cross to carry our sins away from us, sins that were not his own. And also, he went to the cross to carry the shame away from us of the way we've been mistreated by others. And some of us have been mistreated. He carried that away. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Jesus suffered ultimate abandonment, separated from God on the cross, totally separated from the Father by carrying the sin of the world. The gospel tells us that in, that in those hours in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, everything became dark. Why? The light of the Father's face was turned away from the man who was bearing the sin of the world in order that we may always know the light of God's face shining on us. Ultimate abandonment that you might know you're never abandoned. Whatever you go through. Jesus carried ultimate restlessness, cynicism, so that he could say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. This is love. This is a God that would suffer for us. He knows you, and he's gentle and he's kind to meet you in your story. Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he'll not snuff out. Some of you feel bruised. Some of you feel your faith is smoldering. He's not going to extinguish, but bring life and hope.
and breathe comfort. He comes to meet you and to carry you towards his promises. He loves us. In two weeks' time, I'm going to focus more on the love of the Father. But be sure for now that his promises are true for you. His love is true for you. Irrespective of everything, it's the who that enables us to keep going rather than the why. The cross guarantees he loves you and he wants to do you good. But there is more, and I'll close with this. There's the resurrection. There's more. In time and space, Jesus rose from the grave. And and the resurrection shouts aloud that your pains will not last forever. The resurrection declares that history will have an almighty you catastrophe at the end. Christ rose again and is alive, and Jesus lives forever to love you and to save you and to walk with you and to ultimately heal you and undo all of your wrongs and all of your hurts, to be our ultimate healer and savior, so that in the end, even death will be swallowed up in making his victory even bigger. And on that day when he returns, we will see the promised son with our own eyes, and everything that is sad will be undone in his ultimate you catastrophe. Because Revelation 21, 4 to 5 says this. Behold, the tabernacle of God, that's the presence of God, is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe, every, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne will say, behold, I'm making all things new. All things. This is our you catastrophe. It's for you. It's for me. Do you see him? Do you see the son? Do you see him today? His faithfulness and his love. Does your story need a you catastrophe? You're invited to hold him close and treasure him in. You're invited to take hold of this son and make him your very own. And one day he will change everything perhaps you need to receive him for the first time we've already given an opportunity for that at the end of the meeting if that's you I'd like you to come forward so we can pray with you maybe you need to receive him for the 50th time you need like oh yeah he's my catastrophe. I need him there's opportunity for that it might be that some of us just need to be honest about the troubles of life and stop pretending it's all so easy and it might be that some of us need some joy again and just forgotten what it is to laugh And God wants to restore laughter. But for all of us, it's to know that this isn't to be kept to to ourselves. This isn't a snigger. This is a belly laugh to draw others in. In four weeks' time at Oasis Church, we're starting an Alpha course. It's all about Jesus and discovering how he is the you catastrophe for everyone. Why don't we invite people? Why don't we come along ourselves and discover it again? Why don't we pray? I'm going to, if you stand, I'll pray, and then we'll finish. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are the turning point. Thank you, Lord, that Tolkien said it well when he said that the incarnation was the you catastrophe of human history. And the resurrection is the you catastrophe of the incarnation. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that you are God, not far off and removed, but close and near. And you love us. And even in the mystery of suffering, And our question is sometimes, why? Thank you, Jesus. You asked the question, why, Lord? 
in order that you could relate to us and bring us home and show us God. And so, Jesus, we lift our eyes to you again. I pray for dear hearts here who have had much more suffering than I could ever dream of, that you would come and bring them healing in that place. Help them to see a God that suffered for them, with them, and to redeem them. I pray, Lord God, for those who don't know you yet, that they would have the joy of knowing you, that, that knowing you would pierce their stories with such an unimaginable joy. There's nothing that compares to knowing you, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, that all of us would know what it is to laugh, not because our lives are so good, but because our God is so good and always with us. In your great name, amen. Um, if you have got kids, please do um, go and pick them up swiftly. If you want to respond to any of those two, th two things, perhaps it's a first time saying, I need Jesus, or maybe it's a, I need Jesus more and his laughter, do come to the front and I'll be up here with some of the other